good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my name is George Steele. I'm the director of the Miller Theater, uh, and it's my very great pleasure to welcome you. Uh, many of you welcome you back uh, to the final installment of our new series uh, on the new intolerance. Uh, as you well know, tonight's topic is the new intolerance uh, in art or the arts. Uh, we have a very fine panel of five uh, folks to come out and speak with you. Um, there is one more event in the Theater of Ideas series uh, here at the Miller Theater. This spring it's coming up in two weeks, and it's on a related, uh, though not altogether uh, completely similar topic, um, are the arts of fraud. It's called Of Fame and Fraudulence. Uh, it's the faculty from the Columbia School of the Arts from upstairs will be down here um, once again uh, for a discussion. I think it's seven people, so it should be, uh, if possible, still more lively. Um, anyway, uh, welcome this evening, and uh, I hope you have a very fine time, and that we'll see you back, if not in two weeks, uh, to some other events shortly. Uh, the, I should mention before I go that uh, this series, which has been a very, very uh, intriguing series, is a joint production of the writing department, uh, writing division here at the Columbia School of the Arts, and of the Pan American Center. And it's been uh, my great pleasure to work closely with the Pan American Center in making these evenings a possibility. And I hope very much that we'll be doing more of it again next year. So uh, without further ado, uh, we'll bring the panelists out. Thanks very much. I'm Marjorie Hines. I'm a lawyer at the American Civil Liberties Union. And for about the past seven years, I've worked almost exclusively on censorship cases. So I've been very busy. Um, I'm going to talk for about three minutes to try to set some parameters for a very, what, a very broad topic that we have for tonight. Then I will introduce our um, distinguished panelists, and we will go from there. Uh, intolerance in the arts um, is a somewhat amorphous phrase. Um, let me just try to outline a couple of different types that I've encountered. Um, you have political leaders, governments, or political majorities, or sometimes even vocal political minorities trying to censor or suppress uh, artistic expression, whether it's visual art, performance art, theater, film, literature, that they're offended by. Um, and this can come in a variety of forms. Uh, the most direct and obvious is when you have a law that makes it a crime to, um, to engage in certain kinds of expression. And the most dramatic example of that was a case we did over the last couple of years, uh, which ended up in the Supreme Court with the name of Reno versus American Civil Liberties Union. And it was a challenge to something called the Communications Decency Act that Congress in its almost total ignorance of computers and the internet passed uh, and basically prohibited indecent speech in cyberspace. Uh, the Supreme Court decided that that was unconstitutional, violated the First Amendment. There were uh, rather stiff criminal penalties if you engaged in indecent sp speech in cyberspace and that could include any kind of information, four-letter words, art, literature, most 20th century literature probably. So it was a good thing that the Supreme Court struck down that law. That's easy, an easy to understand kind of intolerance of whatever 
Congress thought it meant by indecency. A little more difficult question. We are now um, involved, we just finished briefing to the Supreme Court uh, a case called Finley versus National Endowment for the Arts. Uh, if you remember back in 1989 and 1990, there were a lot of attacks on the NEA um, for funding work like the re retrospective exhibition of photographs by Robert Maplethorpe or the famous or infamous really very beautiful photograph called Piss Christ by Andres Serrano and it went from there. Um, those who were um, outraged, offended, or simply cynically um, making political capital off controversial art that the NEA had supported always found another target. Uh, Karen Finley, the performance artist, was one of those. Eventually Congress passed a law that said to the NEA, uh, you must, in evaluating grants, take into consideration, quote, general standards of decency and respect for the diverse beliefs and values of the American public, end quote. That's a rather vague standard. Hard to know how to comply with that if you're an artist or if you're on an NEA peer panel. But the problem is nobody goes to jail if they violate the standard. All that happens is they don't get an NEA grant. Uh, is that censorship? Does it violate the First Amendment? Is that an example of Congress's intolerance for provocative art, which some, many would argue art by its nature is going to be provocative and should uh, challenge general standards of decency. Um, the Supreme Court will give us some answers to that. Uh, anyway, those are two examples, and I'm sure the panel will come up with others. So let me introduce. First we have Audrey Flack. Audrey is a nationally recognized painter and sculptor and a pioneer in the field of photorealism. Her work is in many collections, including the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Guggenheim, MoMA, Whitney Museum of Art, and has been included in numerous traveling exhibits. Uh, she's also a noted creator of public art, including Civitas, a series of four bronze sculptured, uh, bronze figures in Rock Hill, South Carolina. And she was, I was gonna say recently, but it turns out we just, I just discovered six years ago, commissioned um, to create a sculpture in honor of Queen Catherine of England, who was the wife of King Charles II, uh, in order to commemorate. She was, the, the borough of Queens was named for Queen Catherine, and the sculpture was intended uh, to commemorate Queen Catherine. Um, that commission has come under a lot of uh, political controversy, some of which you may, read about, read, you may have read about. And um, so Audrey has some familiarity with uh, the whole notion of intolerance in the arts. Uh, next we have, to Audrey's left, uh, Jan Avgikos, who is an art critic and historian, uh, contributing editor uh, with Art Forum International, an author of numerous articles and catalog texts on contemporary art, recipient of the College Art Association's Frank Jewett Mather Award for Distinction in Arts Criticism, a teacher at uh, Columbia, and um, a, uh, an active participant in many panels. A.M. Uh, Holmes is an author of three novels, a play, and a collection of short stories. She teaches creative writing here at Columbia, has written for numerous magazines, is a contributing editor of Vanity Fair, Mirabella, Bomb, and Blindspot. That covers quite a uh, range. 
uh, has received awards from the National Endowment for the Arts, uh, probably before the decency standard. Um, the New York Foundation for the Arts and the James Michener Fellowship. Her most recent novel, The End of Alice, is a powerful first-person per account of pedophilia and child murder, which has inevitably been compared with Lolita. Uh, one reviewer said of Alice as narrator, he, quote, leaves Hannibal Lecter well, way behind. Uh, the book has not gone unnoticed. Uh, it's been attacked in Britain by the National Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. And the United Kingdom's major bookstore chain, W.H. Smith, has refused to carry it on the grounds that it does not fit within the store's family values. And plans for a French edition this spring are now up in the air because of the controversy over this book. Um, finally, Ronald Jones is an artist, critic, arts commentator, curator, and chair of the Visual Arts Division of the School of the Arts here at Columbia. He writes frequently for Art Forum, Flash Art, Art in America, and is currently curating an exhibit for the city of Stockholm. Uh, he is also currently at work with composer David Lang on an opera, Petrarch's Air, to be produced by BAM, and that's uh, A-I-R, not H-E-I-R, but I think it still has some double meanings there. Uh, Ronald was a member of the National Endowment for the Arts peer review panel in sculpture in 1990 when Congress passed the decency and respect law that I was just describing to you. Uh, the sculpture peer panel was the only panel that um, not only protested that decency and respect was an inappropriate standard to apply to the arts and in fact had nothing to do with artistic merit, but in fact refused to go forward um, with the grant selection process that year in protest of the law. So, let me start off with a cosmic question. Uh, are we now experiencing, or we ha have we been experiencing over the last five or 10 years, an increase in intolerance in the arts? And if so, what form is it taking? <coughs> Ron, you want to start? Well, <clears throat> um, if we pick up, uh, say, with the National Endowment of the Arts, it seems to me clear uh, that at least the word is out within the community of artists that I know, <clears throat> that it's um, um, almost inevitable that you'll be turned down. Um, and, and so there is a real reluctance in the community itself to participate, and I think that's a direct result of a strong feeling of intolerance on the part of the administrators at the NEA. And there's sort of a sense of defeat and lost purpose there, and I think that's another symptomatic quality of the kind of intolerance that's pervasive. Of course, um, I think largely in response to the controversy that surrounded the NEA as well as the budget cuts, um, individual artists' grants have been almost entirely eliminated. And almost all the grants at this point are institutional. Mm -hmm. But I frankly don't know if the institutions are, I mean certainly there are, there are enough applicants. People, the institutions are still applying. Well. The institutions, which I'll let go unnamed because I don't know if they want to be pulled into the middle of this, um, who are applying, they are um, asked to offer only one application, museums for example, um, at least this is a story I get from directors and curators. Um, and basically what they do is they look at those 
uh, look at the applications before them and they try to decide which one has the best chance of survivability um, if it meets the decency standards and represents a diverse kind of cross-section. And so the um, applications then have become almost formulaic uh, in terms of trying to gather in the money, whatever money is left over at the NEA now. One of the ironies of uh, the past uh, seven years is that since 1992, there has been a court injunction prohibiting the NEA from enforcing the general standards of decency and respect standard. But as a political matter, it hasn't made any difference. Well, because as you say, the NEA is still, um, the NEA has become very gun shy because it wants to survive. Yeah. And from an administrative angle, it became uh, law as well. Within the, within the organization, at least in my experience of being there three or four days in the sculpture review panel, because we were told under, you know, uh, we were told explicitly what would and what would not make it past the National Review Board, which oversees all the peer review panels. And that was actually the sticking point that, that we had. So whether the law is enforced or not, it's effective um, in, in terms of the actual functioning of the organization. And how were those definitions articulated? I'm just curious in terms of the general conversation about what might pass and what had no chance. Well, what is the phrase, Marjorie? If oh, I know it by heart. Yeah. General standards of decency uh, and respect for the diverse beliefs and values of the American public. That last part of it is almost incomprehensible because the precisely because the American public is so <laughs> diverse. Nobody knows what its values are. Yeah. It's impossible to define. And almost anything except a white-on-white -white abstract painting uh, would offend somebody. And even that would probably offend even somebody. That even that more than... than <laughs> <laughs> um, what it really... What, that is coded language, clearly. And we sometimes like to think of it as the decency standard is no more Maplethorpes, please. And the respect standard is no more Piss Christ, please. In other words, no more blasphemous art or art that is misunderstood um, to be blasphemous uh, and offensive to majoritarian Christian American beliefs. I, I would say that from where I said the net result or one of the things, one of the, one of the pieces of the fallout from this um, is that it, it hastened the institutionalization of multiculturalism into an academy because, it, because the formula for a successful grant proposal had to include the sense of diversity and that was the way in which that standard was responded to. Um, not, not that multiculturalism wasn't well on its way to being institutionalized, um, but I think this hurried it along, at least from the institution's point of view. I mean, I think we can look at um, <clears throat> Elizabeth Sussman's Whitney Biennial or the Black Male Exhibition um, all of those that received some support um, were characteristic of this kind of leveling out of, of um, diversity, in fact. But I also think the other piece of it is something that goes beyond the NEA, which is the, the private sector, whether it's publishing companies looking at manuscripts and saying, this book will be controversial, we're not going to publish it because we don't want to be drawn into that. We don't want to be noticed. We want a bestseller, but we don't want to be involved in anything that's going to upset, whether it's stockholders, books, the bookstores, the chains. I mean, there's, there's a whole level of this that's incredibly subtle 
and difficult to judge because you can look at a book and say, well, this book is a bad book. This is a b badly written book, therefore we're not publishing it. Not this is a book that we find so offensive or so shocking or, I mean, th there's that whole other level that I think is incredibly important. And also the idea that I think we're suffering from an incredible bout of political correctness. And the fact is that most interesting work and most progress doesn't come from what is correct. It comes from something on either end of that. Well, I've heard people say, though, that publishers love it when a book actually arouses controversy and demands are made to ban the book. And you've had that experience. The sales I can tell you increase. publishers don't particularly like it. <laughs> but the sales increase. It gets more attention. It gets attention, but it also can get attention that a publisher doesn't necessarily want or that a publisher doesn't want to be involved in, whether it's uh, as dangerous as, as death threats and things like that, um, or as subtle as, as people boycotting books carried by a publishing company, or sales representatives that don't want to have to go into a bookstore and, and pitch this book. Say, hey, we got a great book for you about a pedophile. You want? How many copies do you sign up for? I mean, you know. It's a hard thing. I mean, I think in this case, like people, you know, a publicity person could call a radio station. Do you want to interview the author of the new novel about the pedophile? No. Okay. Bye. I mean, you know. She's really sweet. <laughs> she's really nice. <laughs> she doesn't look like it. I mean, you know. What was that example we were talking about in the green room of the recent suits brought against Barnes and Nobles and oh, Tennessee uh, the Jock Sturgis book. Jock Sturgis. Right. The net result was that is that his sales went right through the ceiling. Right. But that book, in a funny way, it's it's interesting because it's not. It, because it is visual, I mean, the controversy isn't like a, sort of a social one in, in the same sense of pedophiles who murder people. Why don't you explain what the book is? Because um, the end of everybody Alice, may not have read the New yeah. York Times editorial two days ago. Was a it? week ago. A week ago. Really? I don't know about that, actually. Yeah, they actually, it was called um, Book Burning in Dixie. Really? Missed that. Anyway. Rally um, around that flag, folks. The End of Alice is a novel that's told from the point of view of a 53-year-old jailed, uh, jailed pedophile murderer. And one of the interesting things is it's, the guy is in jail, and it's not like he's having like a great time. Um, but because it's sort of his voice is represented, it seemed to cause a lot of difficulty for people. Oh, I was going to ask you to describe the Jack Sturgis book. If you oh, I don't know the Jack Sturgis book. Um, it's pictures of naked people. <laughs> like younger people, some of them. Children. But Nice right. naked images of right. children. It's hard to tell, isn't it? These well, days. that becomes, I mean, it's an interesting question. If you take naked pictures, I mean, this, there actually was the guy a few years ago who took his pictures for photography class that he'd taken of his child naked and to be developed, and he was arrested. I mean, the whole standard of what is abusive or what is pornographic or what is, you know, uh, a crime kind of against a child or a, a sex crime it has, has become a little bit overdetermined, I think, and that's part of what the Jock Sturgis situation mm -hmm. is. Well, I guess part of the question is um, whether you're talking about direct, like criminal laws, right. the kind of thing I was talking about before, where Barnes & Noble Bookstore has now been indicted for obscenity in two states, Tennessee and Alabama, hence Book Burning in Dixie, um, for selling art books that are readily available in museums by artists whose work is readily available in museums. Um, but the work includes arty photographs, artistic photographs, of um, nudes, including some who are children. And right. in the case of Jacques Sturgis, many of them are French children. These were 
These are French families that he's known for years, and every summer he goes back to the Atlantic coast of France, France and photographs these families at nude beaches, which are the way most beaches are in France. Um, and so it's, it would be hard to argue that these kids are in any way sexually exploited, and yet there are now indictments against Barnes & Noble bookstore for selling these books. So the question is, even when you're talking about a direct criminal law ban uh, on child pornography, where do you draw the line? I mean, is it justifiable uh, at some point, let's say the indictments against Barnes & Noble are ill-advised and unconstitutional. Nevertheless, is there some point at which it's legitimate for society to decide we're not going to tolerate um, certain kinds of photographs of children because they're exploitative? You know, I will go out on a limb and say that, um, I mean, I'll preface my remarks by saying that, just as a shorthand, that I tend to side with George Dickey's notion of institutional aesthetics, which is that I have no business telling you about the law, nor you telling me about the practice of making art, that the society has become so specialized that <clears throat> um, we depend on experts in each discipline to tell us what the standards for that discipline are, that I wouldn't get very far um, over in the physics department telling them how they might go about their business. At the same time, I worry about artists who are also citizens who feel as though they're somehow exempt from standing before the courts in, in matters such as this, like any other citizen or any other practitioner of a discipline, and somehow thinking that they're um, able to elude this same standard that everybody else has to live up to puts us, I'm afraid, in a diminished class, um, as though we're not responsible morally, artistically, legally, or in any other way. Um, and I think that, that if we're all going to live by the same rules, we ought to all live by the same rules. And, and we'll see how Karen Finley fares in front of the Supreme Court, for example. Let me, let me stretch the argument a little bit and ask Audrey, and if, um, if it's permissible, let's assume it's permissible for Congress to impose certain standards on arts funding. Uh, is it equally permissible for communities to impose certain standards on public art commissions? Sculptures that are going to commemorate some public event and be in a public space. I and, think a you community, know, feel, feel free to answer based on your own experience. I think a community does have a right to what's in their community. I really do. I think the case of Queen Catherine is, is totally different. You know, it, I was listening to everybody and you were talking about um, the rise of multiculturalism coming out of the NEA, which was a really interesting point. Um, I think it goes so far beyond that because this is the weirdest situation. I did a statue, the Bur Borough of Queens was named after a queen, which I did not know and most people in Queens did not know until now, so it did one good thing, they know that uh, they have some kind of image and they feel good about it. And she happened to be a really nice person, very tolerant, very good, kind person who was an early abolitionist. She left money to free slaves in her will. Uh, and she never had a slave. However, she was Portuguese, and Amistad came out. Uh, and the Portuguese had slaves. Well, so did we, and so did France, which gives us a problem with the Statue of Liberty since they gave it to us. Um, but the interesting part here 
is that I had been working for 10 years, long before this commission, on developing a certain kind of face, a deal with personifications, which the Statue of Liberty is. So I was not interested in getting Queen Catherine as a portrait of this queen. I wanted a personification that a lot, particularly a lot of young people, and a lot of people of color, but I wanted everybody to identify with this face. So I'd been working on this face, and as I worked on the clay, and the, when, the statue's five stories high. <clears throat> so I start with a 22 inch, and then I went 44 inch, then 10 feet, that one's going to Portugal, and then finally 35 feet. And with each phase, the face kept changing. Michelangelo said the face is in the clay, right? All he did was release it, and this thing kept fighting with me, and I started struggling against all the canons of proportions and all the Greco-Roman faces we see on all the statues, which is what liberty is. And I have black family, and my cousin posed for me. My, my aunt married a black man. So, uh, the face became multicultural. I mean, the face on Queen Catherine is a face that anyone could identify with, literally, and has, anybody who's seen it up at the foundry. The irony is she's being protested by almost the very people that this was made for. So it's, it's almost like nothing is safe. You know, Michelangelo could come and make David and uh, David Duke would come and say, he's nude, or you can't have him, or he's a white male. I think it's gotten to a point where everybody can have a beef with art about something. And in this case, he's just been totally politicized. But there's a lot of irony. There was one other point about the NEA that I was going to make, because I was on a panel <clears throat> probably a little before you in terms of time. And the NEA brought a lot on itself, too, because you were talking about morals and values, et cetera. But I was on a panel at a time when a representational artist could not get a grant. You know, you, you had to do a certain kind of thing, and it had to be offensive, or it had to be way out and daring, and it had no regard for the public. So the NEA got in trouble because of that, too. So it's, it's very complex. I just think now there are so many factions, so many splinter groups, so much anger, so much rage out there, and art seems to focus it. It has this magical ability. You know, what did you say? They said about your book, it was written so well that... One of the problems was that the character was so well drawn that it bothered people. Because like, they identified with the character. Well, or that they could see him and hear him, and that was a problem. If it had been a trashier book, it would be less of a problem. <laughs> well, another thing. Well, Amy? I'm trying, I'm trying. There's an option out there for you. <laughs> could you. Could you just, you know. But art gets politicized, and I think that should be handled. You know, when is it art, and when does it get used for political purposes? Well, I mean, that's, that's a big issue. The, the arts in the last 10 years have become a battleground because um, images and even words, even in today's electronic world, even words um, are very powerful and people have powerful responses, often responses that aren't um, 
fully appreciative of the ambiguity and paradox that characterizes art. Um, but they're wonderful symbolic issues. I mean, the, the Maplethorpe uh, image, or to take it, to ratchet it down a couple of steps in terms of artistic elitism, a pornographic image is so powerful, it makes the argument. Um, and there's very little, uh, often rationally, that debaters can do uh, to respond, to ask, for example, what should the limits be? Or if you're going to try to censor this, who's, who gets hurt, or how do you define it? Well, I don't, I mean, this doesn't really address what you're saying exactly, but I think that it goes to the idea of why do artists do what they do, and I think that artists make their work in part to reflect the society that you're living in, whether it's to write a novel that deals with something that you can find on the front page of a newspaper anywhere in the world, actually, at this point, but somehow that's acceptable to report it as news, it's not acceptable to write about it as a novel. I think imagery as well, you know, these are things that are happening. Um, whether it's a photo, you know, an S and M photograph, this is an aspect of society. This is something that that is a very complicated piece of the culture that we're living in, and and somebody representing it or illustrating it or developing it even further is somehow producing a, a piece of work that reflects that and also gives us something to respond to. And I, I want it worries me that we can say you can't do that. Because that, in fact, is what art probably is, you ultimately. You can't repeat that idea because we don't like that idea. Well, it you, can't show, it, it's, you can't show us back to ourselves because we don't want to see. Well, and the, the particular objection from the Society for the Protection of Children in Great Britain, which is a very common objection that we hear often in this country, is other people will read it and get ideas and act on them. Right, and my feeling was other, those people already had the ideas and that the people who were saying that people will get ideas were actually afraid of their own ideas. Well, is there, would you therefore take the position that nothing, no speech should be banned, no art should be banned, regardless of whether uh, it may in fact trigger uh, some crazy person to yeah. act? One of the questions I got asked in England was, if your book was found in the home of a murderer, how would you feel? <laughs> Devastated, I'm sure. And, yeah, and I, it actually took me, unfortunately, two days to think of the answer, which, of course, the piece had already run, and the answer was, if I made steak knives and... One of my knives was found in the home of a murderer. How would I feel? You know, I didn't make the steak knife to kill the person, um, nor do I write a novel to create a pedophile. Um, I mean, I think that it goes back, in a funny way, to what Ron was talking about in terms of the thing being held to the standards of the practice in which it was created, which is, I mean, in the example of this novel, which, interestingly, they're having a problem publishing in France. I think of what is France's literary history. I think of the Marquis de Sade or Genet or the fact that Lolita was published there when it couldn't be published here. So I'm interested in why the political and moral climate or cultural climate is such that suddenly this novel, which frankly isn't as good as these other books, can't be published because it's too dangerous. Yeah, right, because, that's what's interesting. Because, all of, because you're going to have a group, because we're so splintered that there's a group against everything so or is for it, anything. Is it your position, therefore, that nothing should be banned? I think, nothing in the arts should be banned. You know, I think this is a terrible thing that bad art should be banned. <laughs> um, you know, so much should probably be banned, but I think that it's, we're not looking in the right places. Well, could I just come back and ask, banned by whom? Well, let's start I mean, with Jesse Helms. The collectors, the audience, the, you know, the, the critics, the museum, are we uh, asserting the authority, the powers that be here as the government 
Well, right, I. that's, and it's that's right the way we lawyers or, think. Ban means the government, right. I yeah. mean, you can have more censorship imposed by, um, if the entire arts and entertainment and publishing industry is all controlled by Rupert Murdoch, you know, he's got more con power than Jesse Helms. See, I mean, the but problem banning, here, I mean the government. The yeah. problem here is not whether art is too lascivious or too risque or too threatening to our sense of moral decency. The problem is with art itself. The public has not trusted, and I think for good reason, has not trusted contemporary art ever since the notion of the public existed. And I think, actually, when we are concerning ourselves with the absurdities of what is banned as art, then uh, you know, I, I think we're really looking at a very deep-seated antagonism between the public, the government as the protector and spokesperson for the public, and what it is that artists are involved with and what artists do. Furthermore, I would say, if we have any uh, discussion about, um, <clears throat> let's say, pornographic imagery, we understand that as art, it generally tends to occur in certain segments I mean, there are art spaces that we go to to look at those things. We can also go to the newsstand and buy material of you know, similar intensity or that sort of thing. I, I don't feel that we're having so much of a debate in our country as a whole about the production of these kind of images in society. What the real issue is calling these images art. And then that's where it comes from after that. And I, and I think that furthermore is because we have a certain investment that culture and art go hand in hand, that they're sympathetic to one another. And I think it's very likely that in the last number of years we've really come to a watershed on this point. Would you like to hear more of what I have to say on this topic? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'd, you know, I'd like to know what your definition of art is. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> just, you know, just to, since we can't define intolerance, Something that we, that we agree upon and recognize to see as art and to discuss as art. I don't think it has anything to do with the nature of the object per se, but in terms of where and how we encounter it and the sort of language we bring to that experience. Yeah, but then the question is, who's we? That's true. Thank you. I mean, I, <clears throat> I, I, I want to draw a distinction. Um, two distinctions very quickly. Um, one is, uh, under the heading of who's we, the um, uh, example of Chris Burden's work, 747, in which he took a pistol and shot at a, at a departing 747 at the end of LAX one morning. Now, um, when the police arrived, Chris simply explained he was an artist, and they went, oh. <laughs> <laughs> we'll move along. If it had been um, someone else who wasn't an artist, they would have had other consequences, I'm sure. And, and so this special place, we, whoever we is reserved for art, artists, and I think that puts art, the arts in a very disempowered position, one in which we get kicked around like the stepchild of serious and leading disciplines. And I'll just offer this one, um, I'm the chair of the visual arts department, so I'm just a walking advertisement for the visual arts. I, I, I would make this one distinction, which I've been playing with for the last couple of years, and it goes to your question, Marjorie, of whether any art should be banned. In 1978, David Baltimore wrote an essay about scientific experiments to be deferred, that there were certain scientific experiments that scientists just shouldn't do. 
because they, they address certain moral and ethical issues that shouldn't, you know, shouldn't be unpacked. <clears throat> and artists tend, I, I can't think of an example, where artists have to cross the same moral bridge that you do when you defend a client for murder that you know is guilty, or that the architects of Auschwitz had to cross, or that Teller had to cross when he built the atomic bomb. I can't think of an example, maybe Chris Burden in some soft way, but I can't think of an example where artists have to cross the, that same kind of moral bridge. And it puts us again in this very diminished Do you believe role. that there is, an, that there could exist an example? I, I think not, actually. Well, there used to be. Do you believe be. that artists should be able to make anything? No, anything. no, no. I'm, 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 I'm saying I, I, I don't believe that. I, I, um, I think that artists uh, should recognize a certain moral and ethical even legal responsibility to the, to the society that every other discipline has to face. Well, up. Yeah, I, I mean, there's probably little disagreement about the proposition that artists are subject to the same laws as the rest of society. So that, for example, in the tw 10 years ago when the feminist debate over pornography was raging, um, the followers of Catherine McKinnon would talk about snuff films, and nobody could ever really find out whether any snuff film had ever been created. But if, if there were a, a film in which people were murdered in order to make the art, um, that doesn't exempt the cinematographer from murder charges. And by the same token, you could probably argue that true child pornography, and we're not talking about artistic pictures of nudes of kids, we're talking about um, young kids actually being forced to engage in sexual acts in order that somebody can photograph it. If somebody is actually engaging in sexual abuse of a child, it probably should not be a defense that they were making art. Um, but on the other hand, uh, that's really not my, what my question was directed to. My question was directed to if there are certain ideas in art that society, a majority of society, considers sufficiently dangerous, is there a justification for banning them? And the Marquis de Sade is a good example, and so is David Baltimore, because in fact I was reading just last week Roger Shattuck's book, which I think is called Forbidden Knowledge, mm -hmm. and he has a long chapter on the scientific research the issues of, is there some scientific research that should not be pursued or should be banned? Right. And then he's got a long chapter on the Marquis de Sade, which is really the centerpiece of his book, and he's clearly offended by two things. One is that um, if you really read the Marquis de Sade, it is almost unreadable, it is so grotesque. Um, and the fact that it's prurient and sexual in its grotesqueness, he finds, understandably, particularly disturbing. Uh, but he's even more disturbed by the fact that um, the book has been celebrated, the works of, of de Sade have been celebrated in the, in the 20th century as great works of philosophy, and, great, and de Sade is a great intellectual revolutionary. And Shattuck feels that um, this celebration of what maybe should not be banned, but certainly should be condemned morally because the ideas it propounds are so horrendous, he finds that very problematic. He doesn't come down for banning the works of the Marquis de Sade, but he certainly comes down for not celebrating them, for labeling them as dangerous, and for not letting children uh, have access to these ideas, because his theory, which is certainly very widely held in society, is that young people are not sufficiently socialized, or not yet of an age to be able to absorb and put into perspective uh, dangerous ideas. And of course, that same philosophy 
underlies the V-chip and attempts to censor the internet and prohibit the dissemination of pornography to kids. So what do you think, is Roger right? I think we're fighting a losing battle. If we're worried about the exposure of children to dangerous ideas, you know, I don't know, Melrose Place, I know 120, um, you know, the floodgates have been opened. And I don't think that, you know, a discussion of whether we should ban this particular instance or another really even begins to come close to addressing the problem. If indeed it is that we fear dangerous ideas and the dissemination of those ideas within our culture and the way in which they might, uh, in some sense, compromise innocence, then um, I, I think that battle has ended. Well, there are a lot of people who think it's time to roll back uh, the freedom and the tolerance of any idea in no, the arts. Um, Mablethorpe, just to, on this subject, I don't know if anybody saw, there was um, an unpublished group of photographs, so maybe you didn't see that. I've seen You've those. seen them. And I was on the board of the CAA when uh, they had this issue of censorship. CAA being? College Art Association. Uh, this group of photographs had difficulty being published, and if you saw them, you'd see why. I mean, I feel personally they were horrendous. They're the ones you saw. Uh, and they voted to put out a small publication because this was freedom and everything has a right to be produced. So they decided to use the College Art Bulletin, or the, what is it, the Art Journal, to publish these unpublishable, unpublishable, unpublishable <laughs> photographs. And they went the to the- was. Huh? I wonder who the editor of that special issue was. Uh, I have a copy. Barbara Hoffman. So they, they, went to, uh, they went to the usual, the, the publisher who publishes the art journal, and the workmen there looked at the photographs, and they refused to publish the photographs. I mean, these were really violent, and I'm sorry I saw them. You know, there's some images in your mind you wish were never in your mind. Uh, so I don't know, they Audrey, then went, I learned a lot from those photographs myself. Maybe you did. Uh, these were photographs anyhow, different ways to do it. These were photographs in addition to the X and Y portfolios. Oh, these were XXXX, but these, these were, were sadistic. Any. These were beyond, you know, these were really, I don't even want to describe them. So they went to several publishers, and these guys who were, you know, working the presses refused to publish, to print them. Now, these are work, workmen. They finally had, and they did not want this to come out, but they had to go to Hustler to print the college art journal. Now, I don't know if anybody saw the Hustler magazine where the woman was in a meat grinder, you know, her head was up. I, now, I do not see the value of that. And I don't care if Maplethorpe did it or if Rembrandt did it. it I would question that very seriously, you know, in terms of Certainly, whether it was art or not, and certainly whether it should really be out there. And I don't know if I, I would want to speak about those think? photographs. For you me. don't have to buy it. No one, no well, one's saying to you, "You have to look at this." I'm going to hold your eyelids that's open another until thing. you look I at it. I think that art finds its own audience. Well, I think that so, the people that need it are going to find it. But whether we have to fight so hard for its right to be out there, 
I don't know. Yeah. Well, what about the idea that people are fighting so hard for its right not to be out there? And That's that another today, question. Today it's a photograph of somebody in a meat grinder. Tomorrow it's just a photograph of a piece of meat. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it literally can shift that radically in terms of what is, you know, on the table today in terms but of maybe, this is acceptable or this is not acceptable. But maybe it shouldn't all come under the guise of art, which is what you were saying. Maybe it should come under whatever it is. But it rests there very happily. I, I, I would like to uh, offer another story in conjunction with those highly erotic photographs by Robert Maplethorpe. Um, I was living there. I don't think we saw the same ones. Fist fucking <laughs> up the butt to the elbow. That, I mean, erotic may be a, a matter of opinion. Well, but yeah. no, I mean, they were beautiful. Uh, uh, look, whether or not you're into that, um, I, was, I just want to tell. I was thinking of some other ones. Just a little story I wanted to tell about this. I was working years ago at the Atlanta College of Art, and you know, like a lot of art colleges, are hungry for visiting artists. And Faye Gold had invited Robert Maplethorpe to town. He was having an exhibition, and she called the High Museum saying, "Would you guys like?" Robert to come over as a visiting artist for your 20th century group. They declined. So then she called the Atlanta College of Art, who would take anybody. I considered Maplethorpe to be more than anybody. And um, the president of the college said, yes, we'd be happy to have him as a visiting artist. Uh, I myself went to the Dictionary of Contemporary Artists and Xeroxed the little paragraph on him, gave that to the president to read. We had these visiting artists. Um, lectures in an auditorium that seated about eight or nine hundred people. Now, you know, this is hard. This is hard to fill a big auditorium with the likes of the students at this small art college. And usually we had a little trouble with that. You know, sometimes you'd, you'd come and there'd be 35 or 40 people in the audience. Well, on this day, when Robert Maplethorpe was speaking, that, that, it was standing room only. There were like 1,200 people in that auditorium. We would call that a good turnout. And, um, Maplethorpe was so great. He was sort of standing off on the side of the stage, and he had his pompadour and leather jacket and cowboy boots. And he had come with a stack of carousels, not one or two, ladies and gentlemen, a stack, and delivered those to the technician. And his only remarks were, I thought I'd just show a lot of pictures, and if you have any questions, you can ask. And so the, the carousels went one after another, and we went through the flower pictures and portraits and images of children, and gradually came upon this, this variety of erotic slash pornographic images. A funny aside, the president of the college, he had no idea who Robert Maplethorpe was. <laughs> and I happened to be sitting next to him in the audience, and poor Bill Vos, you know, I don't know where he is today, bless his soul. But he was holding on to the chair so hard that his knuckles were white. Now, I considered that to be a successful event. For my own self, I got to see something of the, the breadth of this artist's vision, if we want to call it that. Um, I think that this was, this was important material in terms of documenting a moment in time, a culture. Maybe not my culture or your culture, but hey, it ranks too. And, you know, more importantly, if we're so concerned with issues of audience response, this was a tremendous turnout. It, by all measures, I think it ranked as a success. You know, people were a little nervous, they got over it. I don't see what the big deal is, unless we are ourselves very much invested in, in projecting our own set of morals. And so well, the I simply cannot I, respond I to someone's like to, moral to indignity say, with respect to an art that 
course, the eye mind itself don't, don't see to function in that the way. The photographs that I saw, and I saw the one you were talking about, that one didn't bother me. But the one that really bothered me was, here. was male, genit male genitalia in some kind of truss, mutilated. Now, I question that, you know, and I, if that's going to bring a great turnout, I think, I think if it was, um, if it was in another context, you would get another audience. I think you're, you know, it, it's a complex issue. You know, but should it, it be like an so. anthropological context? I mean, it is, it it is a document of a culture. It is a document of a moment in time. Well, Human Rights well, Watch reports of torture are frequently graphic and, and rightfully you so. Know, it's, it's just interesting. And I think it should be brought up because I think anybody that does anything and takes a picture of it and then says, this is art. But think know, of if I whip out art. a gun and I shoot you and I say, this is my art, is that allowed? No. It's what caliber you use. Um, <laughs> people have How tried good to the photograph is. People have tried to defend uh, some criminal act by saying it was really symbolic speech, uh, but uh, with very few exceptions, that claim has not gotten very far. But when we're talking about ideas, um, presumably Maplethorpe did not coerce somebody and torture somebody in order to make we that photograph. We don't know that. We don't know what he did. You know, he's a very complex yeah, that's man. That's an interesting question. Suppose he, he was did. a very, uh, you know, and he, he wasn't could be, such a nice guy. He could be prosecuted for mayhem and assault, but should you ban the picture? Well, good point. Um, speaking of um, question and answer periods, I should have told you this before. You're going to have a chance uh, to get into this fray at about 9.15. Um, so start thinking of your questions. Um, anyway, where were we? Should we ban the I picture? mean, I think it also goes to the whole notion of whether it's in, in, in something that's visual or a photograph or in something that's written in a novel. It's what is the idea that's being illustrated here? Where does this idea come from? It, it, I mean, it just for me, it keeps coming back to reflecting something that's going on in the culture. And, and what is an artist's job? What is an artist's responsibility? And who are they responsible to? I mean, I got quizzed on this with this book. I said, well, what is your responsibility? And my responsibility was to render my character as fully as I possibly could. The Eisenheim altarpiece. Now Christ is on the cross, and he's hanging like this. You know, his chest is caved in. He's turning green. He's pockmarked. He looks like he's an AIDS victim. You know, he's got his pustules are bleeding. The crown of thorns has punctured his head. Blood is dripping down, it is it, it's gnarled, it is tortured, and it's transcendent. So you can make art somewhere. You know, we, we, photograph is a problem you know, as to how you manipulate. And there were those early Lucas Samaras ones when he was trying to manipulate the Polaroids. But art, you know, almost anything should be able to be turned into art, any subject right. matter. But I would think even somebody could argue that the Maplethorpe picture of the mutilated genitalia is transcendent. I mean, well, I who cares if it's transcendent? Well, I mean, the point saying, is, that's, if, if sadomasochism that's the, has obviously been a theme in art. Right, exactly. And literature, for reasons that have to do with who we are. Right. But <laughs> let me get back to Roger for a minute, right. because Roger asked the question, quoting 
the brothers Karamazov, um, what price are we willing to pay to save the life of one tortured child? Um, the notion being, and, and, and he uses two examples. I mean, he's got no empirical data to prove that art, like the Marquis de Sade, um, causes children to be tortured. Uh, although the Marquis de Sade certainly describes plenty of that and describes getting off on it. But he, so Roger gives anecdotal examples, which is pretty much what gets done in this area. The Moors murders in England and um, what was his name? Ted Bundy, both of whom, uh, the, the criminals in both of these cases sort of tried to blame it on pornography and um, Ted Bundy went, to, went to, through this at length. Uh, saying, I started reading violent pornography when I was four years old and I needed more and more and eventually I acted it out. Let's assume for purposes of argument that Ted Bundy was telling the truth and the Marquis de Sade and other violent pornography was a significant causative factor right. that made him murder those victims. What price are we willing to pay? Well, you know, I would say, what is Richard Nixon reading at different times? I mean, I think that you're just sort of looking at it in... in in a sexual area, in an area that's that's criminal, that's about murder in the most classic sense and things like that. But I mean, you could look at it in, in a much broader, more political, much more complicated kind of a way of what is the effect of any piece of literature? What is the effect of, of any piece of art? What is the what is the mind of the person do with it? And is the person who creates that work, I think the larger question is, if you are the creator of that work, are you responsible for its effect on your audience? Well, what's the answer? Are you? There is no way to calculate that. Let's say I you mean, could prove it. This is completely hypothetical. I mean, to be able to determine, A, who the audience is, and then, B, to quantify their response. Well, let's say you have to... Should the audience have to take a test before they're allowed in, just look at it and see if they're, like, of mental capacity and of intellectual ability to tolerate the work of art. Well, somebody went into the Vatican and smashed Michelangelo's Pieta. And? Therefore, Ban the Pieta? Ban the Pieta. <laughs> That's it. You take away... Well, I'm not getting any... No, I'm any, saying, what, what, what maybe do you they mean? Read a I mean, anybody too. can do anything. I don't think I'm getting any takers for my proposition that there could be an argument for banning something based on causation. I think the idea is largely saying that you can't, if you can't talk about something, if you can't write about it, if you can't draw it, if you can't paint it, if you can't photograph it, what, what kind of a society are we living in? You know, I actually, in England, one of the really interesting things that came up was that my book would cause what are now known as illegal thoughts. And this is actually a literal, a term that's being used in England in psychotherapy, which I thought here my impression was the whole reason to have things was to have these illegal fantasies, that illegal fantasies were in fact good for you. But the idea that this is, that a book or a piece of work will cause you to think something you don't want to think, to believe something you don't want to believe, I think is incredibly unlikely. You know, you can't make people do things they don't want to do. You, nobody forced Ted Bundy to kill people. But aren't you I, denying the value and, and power of art? No, I when think that say, art's very powerful, but I think that when, that all, all sort of all art is powerful, and it's, whether it's no. a biography of Eleanor Roosevelt is powerful. I mean, you Well, know. nobody's going to force anybody to go and buy your book, you know? I hope they do, actually. I hope they do. I want to draw, a, a, in agreement, I want to draw a relative example, which is, in, in effect, to quote um, 
Arthur Danto, we're not talking about whether the art is good or bad, but how it's art at all, how, how it got there, and, and, and how it's banned or promoted or otherwise. And I think that the art world does a pretty respectable job of um, maintaining its own standards. Uh, that's why curators and deans and gallery owners and artists and critics uh, do their job. That is to say, an, a work of art, whether it's your book or a Audrey sculpture, is going to be presented and then Jan and I in print are going to argue the merits of it back and forth. And I think we've done a pretty respectable job of monitoring ourselves. At the same time, uh, the question about whether art is powerful or not, it isn't in a relative sense, um, maybe in a romantic sense, but I do, in terms of the greater world, the larger world, I like to use the example of this summer when Bill Bow opened and Jeff Koons's giant flower puppy, four-story, three-story tall flower puppy, was used by Bass separatists to plant bombs in um, uh, with, which they were going to blow up on the opening day. Well, what better mask for a terrorist bomb than art because, of course, no one would expect it to, to, to have done anything, to have had any power to do anything. And, and so the irony of it was, was, was at a perfect pitch, it's, it seems to me. Um, and so in, in our own way, we hobble along and keep our noses clean, I think, by and large. We may have arguments between ourselves, but it's a system of checks and balances. Um, uh, but when you take that checks and balance system of checks and balance and, uh, and apply it outside the art world, then it becomes a, a kind of diminished uh, class. Well, this goes back to what do you mean by art or the art world? I mean, we First Amendment types think of art quite broadly. Uh, it doesn't have to be good or bad. It can be tasteless. It can be soap operas. Uh, it's artistic expression, and in terms of the First Amendment, it gets the same protection. Um, there was an article by Margot Jefferson, I think, today in the Times about trashy art or trash, or um, <clears throat> how everybody uh, has their moments when they just want to revel in bad taste. And she talks about how uh, everybody uh, occasionally just wants the catharsis, uh, which goes back to a debate about whether catharsis is something that the, the cathartic process that allows us to experience art and not imitate it. We go to Greek tragedy, we see these horrors and bloodshed. We don't go out and sleep with our father and kill our mother. Um, instead, we have a cathartic response. There's, there's been a lot of arguments by those who would censor popular culture that, that that kind of experience does not happen with popular culture, with bad art, um, if you will. Uh, that instead, people will imitate or kids will simply absorb those attitudes and act on them and become irresponsible adults or have unsafe sex or what have you. I mean, let's talk about art to include popular culture in the media and the effect of bad ideas on young people. Young people aren't the audience for art. Well, they're the audience for a lot I of TV disagree. and for rap music. Well, that's true. I mean, we, we, as you say, right, when we, I'm a little slow here. Um, <clears throat> when we move into popular culture, I think we're, we're looking at essentially the same sorts of arguments the fear of images, the fear of words. Um, I, I, I really don't have anything to say on this. I mean, I, I know that you have very particular concerns about the legalities of the situation, but um, actually, as you know, I came here tonight approaching this topic of intolerance in art from a really different perspective, and I wonder if I might just 
Um, Do it. I wrote a paper, folks. <laughs> it's, uh, it's not too long, but it was my concern. I figured that we would be talking a lot about the relationship between um, visual arts and culture at large and the public and um, adjudication of the legalities and that sort of thing. And I really did feel that I wanted to um, bring something else into the discussion. And so I, um, I, I sat down today and I wrote what I call a, a top ten list of intolerances in the art world. And I'd, I'd like to talk about this notion of intolerance, not in terms of our, our interface with the public, but really what goes on inside. So <clears throat> um, this top ten list is somewhat arbitrary, um, given that it's pretty much what came to mind first, but it still fits. Number one, postmodernism <clears throat> or postmodern art in the early 80s, a period of new intolerance for what were perceived as the spent ideals and exhausted ideology of modernism. This was the first art that proclaimed itself postmodern, by the way, and it was exuberantly intolerant of being co-opted by the machinery of mass culture as it was determined to invent in-game strategies in order to forestall the inevitable, the death of the avant-garde. Theatricality and terrorism that was the order of the day. The manifestos were very specific. Make fake art, deploy your biting critique of cultural institutions within highly desirable objects, which you will in turn market to the self-same institutions. Above all, resist the production of irresponsible baubles. Number two, the new intolerance of the second generation of postmodern artists in the late 80s who questioned the logic of the previous generation's key defensive maneuvers, such as biting the hand that feeds you. In order for institutional critique to be valid, they reasoned, there must be an exploration of complicity. Number three, art on trial, part one. Robert Maplethorpe's photographs brought to justice in Ohio. I remember reading some of the testimony in the papers. Art experts had been flown in from New York to vouch for the beleaguered art. It seemed the only art content they could identify or discuss in a courtroom in Ohio, as the case may be, was Maplethorpe's deft use of light and shadow. When in doubt, talk about chiaroscuro. <laughs> Number four, Art on Trial Part Two. This time, it's an affable sculpture entitled String of Puppies that's brought before the bench. The ruling went against the artist, Jeff Koons, in favor of a photographer named Art Rogers, whose photograph Koons had appropriated as the basis of his large, hand-carved, eponymous sculpture. The law says that parody is legal so far as transformation occurs. I, myself, consider the difference between a mass-produced drugstore greeting car image and a giant wooden sculpture as sufficient to constitute transformation. The appellate court judge, however, did not. He considered parody to be no different than piracy and plagiarism. Freely translated, postmodernism was suddenly against the law. Number five. A lot of people had a hand in shaping discourse in the 80s. When the market crashed in 1990, plenty of them abandoned what was perceived to be the sinking ship of postmodernism. Enthusiasm for the full-fledged movement evaporated with astonishing rapidity and in direct proportion to Wall Street's waning interest in the investment potential of contemporary art. 
anything that smacked of commodification or critique, all that art about theory became synonymous with cynicism. A call went out for a return to quality in art. Forget metaphor, the mirror, the surface, the tear and the projection screen. In the period of new intolerance, we were supposed to bank on nothing short of the real. Six, multiculturalism, or getting down on what's real. We want black artists who can talk about being black. We're also looking for South American artists who make, well, you know, South American art. Work by women artists, yes, that's on the list too, as long as you deal with gender. In fact, we're sending out an open call for talent, red and yellow, black and white, gay or lesbian preferred. We're interested in your abjection, as it turns out for the sake of our own pleasure. But in exchange for your heartfelt suffering, we're prepared to license you as an authorized dealer of social and political truths. Number seven, WAC, part one. The Women's Art Coalition, formed in the early 90s by a group of art world feminists and activists to function as the voice of conscience in contemporary art. They were very intolerant of sexism and the good old boy system that ran the show. As the moral police, judge, and jury on matters of political correctness, they worked overtime. So it was on the occasion of the grand opening of the Soho Guggenheim. Whack was there in force, drum corps, picket, and all, protesting the Guggenheim's notorious lack of sensitivity to women and refusal to amend discriminatory policies. Anyone on the inside track of the barricades that evening was perceived by Whack as the enemy. That included moi. I got special jeers as I approached the museum's entrance and was loudly accused of not being a good feminist. Wack's complaint concerned the underrepresentation of women within the institution. I had written for the new guidebook to the permanent collection. Wasn't that what they wanted? That the voices of women should echo in the halls of the institution? So why was I a bad feminist? They in their studio clothes and me in my evening attire. The only thing that separated us that night was a line of barricades that seemed infinitely long. Eight, Wack, part two another performance event. A couple of years ago, a big cover story appeared in the New York Times Sunday Magazine about Arnie Glemsher and Pace Gallery. The cover image showed Glemsher surrounded by his stable of artists, all white males, or maybe he'd already taken on his one female artist by that time, Kiki Smith. Wack organized a demonstration outside the Uptown Gallery. There they amassed wearing business suits and ties and sporting huge plastic penises popping out of their pants. <clears throat> their placards proclaimed that they finally had what it took to make it in the art world. Number nine, the NEA report, American Canvas, designed and written to be read as an internal audit on the art world. Intolerance shines in full force in those sections that compose the deathbed confessions of practitioners of contemporary art. Yes, we have sinned in being elitist. Yes, we are responsible for the demise of art, for our solipsistic disregard for the audience, for alienating not only the public, but ourselves as well. Oh, fathers on Capitol Hill and the powers that be, what can we do to right these hideous wrongs? Number 10, 
deep-rooted suspicion within the art world that postmodernism is a grand conspiracy organized by a coterie of select artists, critics, and academics, a veritable mafia of intellectuals and aesthetes that's taken charge of art. They're the blame for the decline, for the confusion, for the pluralism, for the fact that we might as well throw away the 90s and most of the 80s with it. Amen. That's 10. I'm not going any further. Not going to talk about the intolerance in relation to the public rejection of Richard Serra's Tilted Ark. Didn't talk about the time I was told I could theorize and editorialize as much as I wanted in my writing, but sorry, I couldn't talk about the meaning of art in relation to how much it cost. Didn't mention all the times that artists and writers, the creative types, get stiffed by their dealers and publishers. Although I will make fleeting reference to Morley Safer's 60 Minutes segment several years ago, in which he lampooned contemporary art as bogus claptrap and characterized the denizens of the art world as buffoons caught up in a rendition of the Emperor's New Clothes. I'm going to censor you soon. One more page. <laughs> Simply because people, uh, we want to give um, time for everybody to sum up and a few um, and significant time for questions. So can you wrap it up in about two more minutes? Yes, ma'am. Thank you. What I will mention, however, in closing, <laughs> is that the new intolerance in art is tantamount to a flavor of the month. If we're lucky, we'll always be able to point to levels of intolerance both within and beyond the art world as signs not only of life, but of passion. Intolerance is a great motivator in contemporary art, no matter the decade of its production. It's one of the means by which discourse develops. It's the method whereby young artists kill off the father or the mother, as the case may be. It's the very lifeblood by which art reinvents itself. I don't look to the public's response to contemporary art as a measure of whether there's more or less intolerance for art these days. The public doesn't think about or live with art, unless we consider the hideous wall sculptures at the Canal Street Post Office, for example, to be art. And if that's the case, I don't blame the public for their legendary intolerance. The public, for as long as that notion has existed, has always been leery, if not outright intolerant, of contemporary art. What interests me more, quite frankly, is the notion of intolerance within the art world itself. Over the course of years that spanned from the 60s to the 90s, certain intolerances for the new have formed in direct opposition to postmodernism, or at least the perception of the postmodern in art. Perhaps this topic lies somewhat beyond the scope of tonight's discussion, but I do believe the single most defining issue in the new intolerance concerns the problematic and polemics of postmodernism. Three decades or so is precious little time to absorb both historical rupture with modernism and then ruptures within the rupture and so on as postmodernism comes into formation. We have yet to come to terms with the postmodern world. Genetic reengineering, human cloning, computers on an evolutionary fast track, let alone postmodern art. It would seem the stakes are so very high as we plunge further along in the discourse and production of art that explores its own limits, that constructs itself as that which it is not. If this logic ushers us further along the path of the postmodern, it is one instrumentalized by an art that in asserting itself is always, in some curious way, acknowledging the force of that which is not itself, including that which it seeks to exclude. One is tempted to say that in postmodern art, 
but in postmodernism, art has finally come to its truth and has appropriated itself for itself, its proper field or problematic, except that this problematic is precisely that of art's essential impropriety, its essential, if profoundly difficult, possibility of losing itself. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Um, I'd like to give everybody a chance to make a short uh, summary statement. And um, let me just throw out a couple of questions that you can address yourself to if you're so inclined. Um, I'm, of course, still obsessed with the NEA issue and the funding issue. It's a political as well as a legal issue because what we have found is that uh, in a lot of communities where uh, attempts have been made because of political pressures to uh, limit what can be funded. There was a case in, um, recently in uh, Charlotte-Mecklenburg, North Carolina, where um, the arts, uh, the county commission was upset by angels in America. Uh, we're not talking about anything that um, is too out of the mainstream at this point of American culture, but they were upset with the gay, lesbian themes and angels in America, and they decided that they were going to have to impose some family values restrictions on the Arts Funding Council. Um, when they were, when they became aware, and this has happened in a couple of other places, when they became aware that um, we had won the Karen Finley case in the lower courts, and that courts had ruled that it violated the First Amendment to have these kinds of restrictions on arts funding, they just decided to eliminate arts funding. And of course, this has been the same political problem that has plagued the NEA. Uh, the fear being that if Congress is told you can't have these ideological restrictions, you can't set limits um, in terms of political viewpoint on what the NEA can fund, of course, you can decide what you think is meritorious, um, that the agency will just be eliminated because politically, the American public is not prepared to fund uh, even with very small amounts of tax dollars an arts funding agency um, that will occasionally fund something that is provocative or cutting edge, um, perhaps even postmodernist. So the question is, um, you know, how should we resolve uh, this political dilemma? Uh, should there be limitations on government arts funding in deference to the political, the sentiments of the political majority? Are we better off without any government arts funding at all? Let's just go around, and then we'll open it up. Um, well, in its, I'll give you a short answer. In its current form, I think it's better to have no arts funding at all, um, uh, it, because this, the, uh, the state of arts funding is, in its current manifestation, so confused. And I think ultimately has to be settled in the courts with your good work. I, I would just go back, though, just as an alternative to, to uh, cutting it off altogether, to something that you said about what is Richard Nixon reading, <clears throat> as, as to, to leap off from there and, and make it go back to my original plea for George Dickey's notion of institutional aesthetics, where we police ourselves, we monitor our own work, um, and, and, and were government funding to be reintroduced in some substantial way, it would be left to us in, in an exclusive manifestation, just as politicians leave to rocket scientists how best to 
uh, um, design the missiles that we'll use in Iraq, I would imagine very shortly. And that the same parity and respect for the discipline should be sustained. I think that sounds fine. Um, I think that the funny thing is we, we are not a country that has a real sense of that we believe in funding for the arts. I mean, there, it's not like there's been tons and tons of funding for the arts. I think that in a funny way, art inherently is something that seems to scare a lot of people. And it probably always has. I mean, from, from first things that were written down in the first pictures, we went, oh my God, you know, I don't look anything like that. I mean, I think, you know, again, to, to second what Ron is saying, that the way that funding is being handled at this point, I think it makes artists and institutions act peculiarly, for lack of a better word. And it would be perhaps better if they didn't feel they had to do those strange dances or produce work or respond to the, that odd, in a funny way, unclear definition of what it should be doing anyway. So I think in its current state, we are better without it. And we should just be passing you know, hats around on the subways, probably. Probably raise more money, actually, too. Well, I, I do think that the government has failed rather miserably in its role as patron. <clears throat> I remember the um, suggestion of Representative Dick Armey, I think, who um, advanced the idea that maybe we might want to just fold the NEA and use the funds that were remaining in its coffers to distribute to the American public. And I think that would have rep resulted in every adult and child in America getting a box of crayons. About 59 cents. Hmm. I don't know. <laughs> uh, it's complex. Uh, I, you know, there are a lot of institutions, like um, in, in small communities, art centers and dance companies and theater companies. I'd hate to see that go. I think that's very important. I think, thank you. I think the problem started arising when you get when you got some artists that were doing, quote, what was considered you know, problematic or outlandish, or, and in some instances, really provocative stuff. So you have uh, the government, which is like the parent, giving money to the child who's spitting in the face of the parent. And th so that was part of a problem. Um, and then there's the question of who's art for, who is your audience? It's, it's a big thing. I, I tend to think that things reach their own level without any um, banning and without any of that stuff. I think things seem to reach their own level, but everybody's gotten in it, you know. Well, that's getting off into another thing. But I, I'd like to see these groups continue. And individual artists almost might be better without funding. That's how I feel. Thank you, everybody. Um, we should turn on the lights, and anybody who has a question to address to any member of the panel, or all of us collectively, please line up. I see we already have a few customers. Uh, why don't you identify yourself first? My name is uh, Philip West, and I'm a musician. So it's wonderful to see from the makeup of this panel that uh, there's no intolerance in music these days. Uh, I, I just have a comment or two uh, about this, some sort of sentences that I wrote down. Uh, apropos of the last thing that was said, I think art is very much confused with entertainment in our uh, 
in our world. Uh, we treat uh, movie stars as though they are artists and we ignore artists. Not that a lot of the movie stars aren't terrific, I don't mean to say that. But I think art has become so politicized as this conversation uh, uh, makes so tremendously evident that uh, the idea that art should be judged by aesthetics uh, gets lost in the shuffle. It, it, it seems to me that art really is only as a, uh, as a, a art should not be p political unless it is political, which is to say that Angels in America is more importantly a work of art than it is a political statement, it seems to me and that great art stands on its own, um, one sees over and over again that, uh, that uh, works of art, especially since I'm a musician, I can say this about music, which are considered highly uh, uh, controversial 30 years later or 40 years later, are seen as uh, representative of their times. Which is not to say that I don't believe that the issues that you're speaking about having to do with the intolerance that exists in, uh, in the world of art as it's seen through a political veil are not very important. But that brings me to an, another issue that it seems to me that you've brought you have up. a question? Well, is there a question okay, the yes, there is a question. This is it. Is it not true? Uh, that uh, what you imply that the NEA has outlived its usefulness because it's been so politicized that it no longer functions as a service to art but rather as a platform for bigots to tell their constituents what's bad about the elitists among us of whom we probably realistically have to admit that we are part of that group uh, are trying to lay off on us, which is to say that and I, I agree with whoever said that we don't need the NEA more anymore because it's become so politicized. But my, I suppose that's my question. Do we need the NEA longer since it's been politicized to the point of being more trouble than it's worth? Anybody want to tackle that one? No. <laughs> well, it is complex. You know, I mean, We've all agreed on that. Yes, I mean, there are, there are benefits. I, I, I agree with what you said. I think that, that there are groups that, that depend upon funding and um, a lot of people will be left in the lurch without any kind of support. I mean, we also know that corporate private funding is dwindling and a lot of foundation grant money is gone. So I, I, I on one hand, you know, happen to agree that it's a big burden, all this politicizing that the NEA in, in, engages in. But on the other hand, I think that this is not a simple issue. I'm not quite yeah, so sure. Can you, could you, could you get online, please? Oh, I completely <laughs> agree with you, Bob. I think that there are... Please get online. Let's, let's behave, come on. I, I completely agree with you. I think that that contributes to the general conundrum that on one hand, the funding always comes with strings attached. You let know, me, and how let much me, uh, do we, are we willing to pay for those strings? Let me, let me um, try to um, essay a somewhat further answer in the, in the form of another question, uh, which is if the NEA has become so politicized because it's become uh, a fertile, uh, ground for um, 
advocates of all kinds to attack uh, artistic expression or ideas that they don't like, and the NEA is therefore killed, uh, what are they going to attack next? I mean, we are in a society where government uh, is deeply involved in the financial support of expression over a wide range of areas. Are they going to go after the National Endowment for the Humanities next and demand that all humanities grants comply with general standards of decency? Are they going to go after public universities or public libraries and demand that all the books and all the professors be, be cleared? Uh, this is where the battleground is now, but I'm not sure that if we get rid of the NEA, we get rid of the problem. Next question. Thank you. Um, I'll just make some comments and ask you to comment on my comments. Can you identify yourself? Oh, uh, my name is Carlos Brown, and I fancy myself a writer. Um, in deference to our, our, our panel and the fact that the topic tonight is intolerance in the arts, I do think that it's probably vocationally aggrandizing to think that the issues that come out of the discussion have solely to do with the arts. I think you're correct, and it really is about censorship. I think it's illogical to worry that the arts have become so politicized because expression and art falls into the broad category of expression is political. How you talk, write, walk, the fact that I'm standing at this mic and talking to you all now, a panel of um, ostensibly Caucasian people is a very political thing because it's obvious to me that at a certain time in history, I wouldn't have been allowed to stand here and talk like this. It's no, I think the issue gets to be almost one of economics, the economics of attention, because attention legitimizes a subject. It's no accident that Hitler hated Mondrian because his art talked about, you know, extending, expanding thought processes and represented a real threat to the kind of thinking that Hitler was suggesting, then it becomes hardly accidental that most of the time the art that government seems to be trying to censor winds up being art that pays attention to and runs the risk of legitimizing thoughts, cultures that are counter to the prevailing culture, such that James Baldwin at one time might have been discouraged in terms of reading. In fact, at Middlebury, I, I encountered many students who had never even heard of James Baldwin. So I think it comes down to who the hegemony, if you want to use a word like that, wants to see get attention. Is there a question at the end of that? Uh, not necessarily. I felt compelled to say that and Thank was you. wondering what you think about that. Thank you. Anybody um, want to respond? I think the only thing I would say is, uh, I think you're right, um, but what tends to happen is we're, we've been in a situation now for 10 years, which has been, I think, accurately called a culture war, and art's been in the middle of it because of the powerful symbols that it generates, uh, and the culture war is a reaction by those who, uh, whose ideas are representative of an older culture which has not only been threatened, since the 1960s, really, but has been substantially undermined. I mean, if you just think, take the example of gays and lesbians and the way in which um, that was such a closeted subject 30 years ago, um, uh, to the point we are at now where many major plays on Broadway 
uh, are explicitly about um, gay men and lesbians. What we have is a reaction from people who are anxious about those changes and would like to um, put some of that uh, more novel or more uh, radical uh, kinds of expression back in the closet. Any other questions? Come up. Yes. I name? Am, my name is Sherry Minash, and I've been, am on and off, writer and a teacher. And I'm not talking about this in terms of any kind of contractual burden, but wouldn't it be helpful to us as artists if we could somehow respond to these challenges by saying, look, art is something people make, all kinds of people, not just relatively limited elites. And it says a great deal about how ordinary people in their everyday lives live their lives and gives us the kinds of perspectives we need to think more rationally and more completely about our everyday lives. In other words, have we, have we been derelict in taking our case back to the people and saying, look, this is not just an elite art that essentially expresses contempt for you and says you'll never understand me, but that all art, or much of art, most of art, and understanding of art is, an, is a function of having had the experience of enough of it, whether it means listening to enough music, reading enough books, looking at enough paintings. That's how you get it. It isn't as though it's, in some sense, uh, walled off from most people. I don't think we've really said it isn't walled off from most people, and I don't think we've really said it's about all of us, and it can be by many, many of us. Do we have some kind of, would it be in our own self-interest not to do that, to do this sort of thing? Anybody? Well, I, I can respond to that just briefly, which is that the, the way in which the argument has been brought to us by people like uh, Senator Tomato and and Jesse Helms, and I have to admire them for the radiant attack they brought to bear against the NEA because they set the terms for the argument, um, which, which put us into a position of whether or not we thought Piss Christ or Karen Finley were artists of critical merit, put the community immediately in the defensive position so that we, we couldn't actually exact critical appraisal. We had to shore up shoulder to shoulder come to the defense of Andre Serrano and Karen Finley in order to preserve the integrity of the NEA. And that, that kind of attack, which as I say again, was absolutely brilliant on their part, um, doesn't allow us to uh, uh, speak for ourselves or represent ourselves however that representation might take place. A, a kind of, it seems like you're voting for a, a populist um, attitude. At the same time, the irony of that is that I'd have to disagree with you and say that art, like any other discipline, has become so specialized and so refined, at least this is my experience, uh, that uh, you are or are not interested according to whether you are or not informed. It's like, it's like physics and like philosophy. Um, and the idea that um, art is open and available to the pop population at large is an experience I just haven't had. Hmm. Well, um, I think it's interesting that all the panelists here are representatives of, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, elitist art or art that sees itself as um, framed by education and training and discipline I, I, and people who make I judgments. I object to that in my case. Uh, because okay. I think this I'm panel would that. have been well served, in fact, by having 
a rock and roll musician, a rap musician, a television writer, one of the most stimulating panels of this type I was ever on, um, was stimulating because one of the panelists was a, a TV sitcom writer, and she certainly thought of herself as an artist, and we were talking about the V-chip and what the effect would be, uh, and she had some very uh, strong opinions about that. Um, opera, uh, Greek tragedy, uh, all of those things were popular art at the time, and uh, I agree with you completely that to the extent the public views the NEA or the arts as something separate from their experience, um, it's a problem. Yes? Um. My name's Mark Palmgren. Uh, for a number of years, I was the d director of the Arts Foundation at MIT. And at the time that the Maplethorpe exhibition was in Boston, I was a spokesman and a steering committee member of the Boston Campaign for Freedom of Expression. My own thinking has, there's been a certain trajectory in my thinking on these subjects. And I, there are, I'll try to frame them turning around a question that Amy posed, which is who is the artist responsible to? Um, leaving aside the grammar. Uh, the, I wanna know who is the funder responsible to. And this notion, which shouldn't become as any surprise, that funding comes with strings. Funding comes with strings whether it's from the private sector or the public sector. The private patron wants his child to be, to be a studio assistant. The corporation wants the lobby to be decorated as long as the company mm -hmm. is still doing well. And not the, make any trouble. Um, does it come as such a surprise then that public sector funding will have certain strings or that there'll be some kind of political interference? Um, the, the case of Finley now seems to turn on whether to the degree to which the government can suppress speech for programs it's funded. There's the abortion clinic case um, that I think is what the law is turning on. Um, where we, they, we hope not. We hope, but in that, in that case... <laughs> There's another will, case that we like better. Okay. Um, but you're I, right, the government certainly relies on the abortion, the family planning clinic claim. case. Um, the government has begun, the government has begun to intervene in funding decisions, not only in the arts and humanities, but in the sciences. The NSF is under attack in a way it has never been before. During my time at MIT, the, the presidents of MIT had to go before the Dingle Commission in Congress and defend basic research. Basic research across the country in the, in the sciences is under attack and the funding levels have been decreased. There's no practical value. How can we, why should we fund these things? The same, much of the same rhetoric of the fantasy element in the arts is applied to basic research in the science. Um, so it's not as if our brethren elsewhere on campus are getting an easy ride with any funder either. Now, I think I was most disheartened to hear, however, three of you tonight call for the disbanding of the NEA. Um, the NEA, too often, I'm afraid, in these kinds of panels, in these discussions, 
we talk too much about the visual arts. And the visual arts frame this question, I think, in a, in a, in a, in a not, uh, in, in too restricted a fashion. The NEA, whether it has done our, its job that we hoped it started, that we wanted it to when it was started in 65, has funded thousands of dance companies, thousands of community theater companies, thousands of magazines, many of which aren't supported anymore. The NEA, even in its boulderized state, even in its uh, somewhat, not even go so far as neutered, neutered state, is providing tens of millions of dollars that is effect that goes to education, that goes to the institutions that are serving large publics. And when we talk about the public as the people who are out there, I'm reminded of Raymond Williams, who, with his injunction about people saying the masses, the masses are always the other, except that when I'm in that crowd, you see me as a mass. And when you're in that crowd, you're a part of the mass. The NEA is still doing the job that no one else is in terms of getting the monies out to the public. It may be funding art catalogs. It may be funding um, trips to the symphony. It may be funding those small magazines. But it's still playing an enormously vital role. And to focus solely upon its the, its political uh, short-sightedness in regards to the visual arts, I think, is a gross injustice and puts us as arts advocates um, not, in fact, really not being allied. Um, I'll, I'll finish with this. One of the, it seemed to me that one of the great successes of Donald Wildman and the Christian right and the political right is be they speak with one voice. Um, Eternal damnation is, is an absolute. Um, when we're talking about the arts, be it postmodernism or modernism, all sorts of grays, all sorts of nuances and shades, if we are speaking on behalf of the arts and intolerance in the arts, I think we need to not only discuss our own discipline, but the other arts disciplines that we have more or less contact with, but that offered important inflections. Well, I'll, I'll respond to that from the visual arts side. Um, I, I don't see it as an exclusive property uh, of, vi of visual arts, an exclusive problem of visual arts. Um, it, it's, my, my point was not to disband the NEA. That's not what I said. What I said was to disband the NEA in its current manifestation and possibly look forward to the point where it could be reorganized and reformed because I really worry about all the arts, where we find ourselves in a position, as James Baldwin actually once pointed out, of, of um, black help and whites, white homes, where the whites put out money for the blacks to steal, because they knew that they would steal it in order to reaffirm the difference, uh, the r racial uh, dif difference and, and social and economic difference between those two classes. And I, and I really feel as though the arts sit in the position of uh, stealing money that the authority has set out to be stole in order to reaffirm that distinction. Um, I would rather not continue to participate in that kind of, of um, uh, puppetry. 
um, and rather watch the NEA be dismantled and look to a future where we could rearticulate it. I think we also have to understand that whether it is dance or theater, music or the visual arts, that the very fact, and I'm not going to, well, I'll use this quote again, that the NEA is funded to some one-tenth of military bands or whatever that standard uh, phrase is, uh, says more about our country and that, yeah, we should speak in one voice and begin to address those larger issues rather than take that which, which may be handed out in some sort of compromise situation. Ron, can, I, I'd like, can I say something? You, yes. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting, I was involved with the NEA and in the American canvas. <clears throat> and the NEA got itself in trouble. Uh, and again, you know, I just reiterate, I really do believe all of these organizations needed. I've been to small communities that the whole community depends on the art center, whether it's the dance center or the art. It's important to continue. I think we all agree with that. Uh, but I did a uh, project in, in a small city in South Carolina. I did a gateway to the city and uh, with an architect, and it really did a tremendous amount for the city. As a matter of fact, it turned the economy of the city around. And there were four huge sculptures in the middle of the highway, and it was a statement that this was Rock Hill, South Carolina, you know. And uh, the NEA was floundering. So here, there's this project. They went to the NEA for money, and the NEA, this was a $2 million project. I think the NEA gave them $2,000 or something. They gave Richard Sarah $2 million. Okay, so this is what the NEA was doing. And it was elitist. It really, as far as I was concerned, and many people were concerned, and it's not that I'm against Richard Serra and I was an abstract expressionist, so this has nothing to do with that, you know? Some of my best friends are <laughs> abstract artists, as I was. But they were very, they were pushing certain things. So here's this little city that couldn't get, they had to go elsewhere to get money, and here were other kind of art, here was other kind of art that was getting a lot of money from them and antagonizing the public. Then the NEA gets in terrible trouble. Who do they go to as a representative of something that they gave money to that was <laughs> successful? Let me guess. Little Rock Hill, South Carolina, which hosted American Canvas, and everybody came down there. And, I, and you know, I want to help the NEA, because I think it has to learn, because there is a public, and there are masses of people, and all of the masses of people are not everybody that works minimally, or they're not reductivists, or they're not postmodernists. I mean, we <laughs> don't want keen clowns, or howdy duties and things like that, but there's a lot of stuff going on out there, and I think it was very one-sided. I think it wasn't listening. Unfortunately, it got used just the way you said it got used. And they were very clever. And so we had to defend the Karen Finleys and the other thing. So it's a complex situation, which I hope, I feel somehow, if you're an artist, 